Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellas, your host. A question that is becoming increasingly prominent in public discussion and even international relations is who owns the past? Who is entrusted with its preservation? Who makes decisions about what is preserved? How and where? These questions are being debated more fiercely than ever among nations and museums, private collections, academics, and NGOs. They often play out in the courts, but there are also political questions, especially when a culture's former areas of activity fall today within a different country's boundaries, or when artifacts were plundered before it acquired a modern state to guard them, or when there are competing claims to the same past. Now behind these questions there also lie historical processes of survival that are less often discussed. There can be no contests over ownership if nothing has survived. Compare, for example, the fate of ancient Phoenician culture without of its ancient Greek and Jewish counterparts, all of which were formed and flourished around the same time. The Phoenicians were major players with sophisticated political systems, advanced urban economies, and a literary tradition, but almost none of it survives, largely because no one later had a stake in preserving it. By contrast, a portion of ancient Greek literature survives because later cultures, such as the Byzantines and the Arabs, took an interest in it for their own reasons and preserved part of it. If no one had taken such an interest, then perhaps survival required a dry climate, such as in Egypt, where the original materials survive, uh, or baked tablets, as in Mesopotamia. Now, Byzantinists are uniquely well-positioned to discuss these processes because our field stretches from antiquity to the onset of modernity, and it encompasses many of those processes of survival and non-survival. Byzantium was often directly responsible for making decisive choices in this regard. Now, a rare case of survival is that of Armenian art and literature, uh, which we will discuss today, especially its Christian traditions, uh, which began to leave their mark in the 5th century, but Armenian history and art is closely entangled with that of Byzantium um, at all phases of its history. Now, I call the Armenian case a a rare case of survival because the the survival of this tradition down to this day has rested primarily in the hands of Armenians themselves and not in some successor culture. Uh, Armenians were known to the ancient Greeks and Romans and then to the Byzantines, and there is an Armenian nation-state today. The sponsors and preservers of this tradition uh, saw themselves as a distinct people and were regarded as such by others. Yet the physical presence, the the geographical distribution, and the historical impact of the Armenian tradition of art far transcend the scope of the modern nation state. Here to discuss this tradition with me is Christina Maranci, professor of art at Tufts University and author of a recent survey, The Art of Armenia. The book reveals that this was a very adaptive tradition. It absorbed and internalized foreign styles, and it also emigrated via the diaspora and adapted to local conditions outside Armenia. The book's postscript directly addresses the issues of memory and heritage and makes a plea for the preservation of this tradition. It is heartbreaking that art, which survived for a thousand years during the medieval period, has faced its greatest threat only recently, in the 20th century. So this is a case where preservation requires more international involvement and interest than ever before. One clarification before we begin. In the discussion, Christina and I talk about objects called hachkars, which are running theme uh, throughout her book. Uh, These are decorated, upright stelae, or freestanding stone slabs, uh, sometimes like tall pillars with flat, sculpted Surfaces are quite extraordinary objects, many of which are, uh, you can find images of them in the book. Here then is my conversation with Christina Maranci. Hello, Christina, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Great to be here. So congratulations on publishing the book. Uh, I know yep. it's, it's been a year, but you know, I just read it uh, recently. And you know, I had a very sort of bits and pieces, kind of fragmented view of the history of Armenian art. Um, you know, looking at it sort of sideways as a Byzantinist, 
but yeah. uh, this finally pulled it all together to me. I mean, it's very, very readable, uh, very nicely done. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from uh, a wonderful scholar as such as yourself, Anthony, whose right, work so, I admire very much. Thank you. All right. So let's have some fun with it. Um, <laughs> so first, uh, why don't you just uh, say a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Has have there been major changes in the study of Armenian art recently or on the on the audience for the book that you yeah. imagine? So yeah. what, what made it necessary? Sure. Great question. Um, so I think a few different trajectories kind of aligned um, to lead me to publish the book. Um, first, it had to do with my own sort of moment in publishing. I had just done a sort of closely researched focused book on the seventh century. Um, and I found that my pattern tends to be a closely researched, focused, hardcore research book, and then something a little bit broader. Um, before the seventh century book, I had done like a handbook on art history. So I seem to be kind of, you know, every other book is the sort of big picture book. So that's um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, yeah, there have been a lot of really exciting changes in the field of Armenian art. And I teach this. I've been teaching this subject for 20 years. And so one issue was having a... Um, having decent reading for my students that was in English. And this was a huge problem. Either the scholarship was um, very technical, very hardcore, and assuming a lot of knowledge um, that the students simply don't have, um, or it was uh, surveys that are were published in the 80s and are out of date not only as art history, but also specifically um, out of date in that they don't capture all the discoveries that have been made um, in the field of Armenian art and in, in new interpretations and, and new models. Monuments, and so there was a. Those were, you know, two reasons that I thought it would be a good idea. And then the third thing is that there is this global turn in art history, and it it um, means that there seems to be more interest in um, such sort of quote unquote corners of the world as Armenia. So all these things made it sort of possible for me to uh, write the book, and um, and I, you know, thus far I've been pretty pleased with how it's turned out. So, Yeah, and I, I noticed, um, just sort of following your notes, that a lot of the bibliography is in Russian and French. Mm -hmm. it, it, is there a reason why that's the case? Yeah, well, the, um, the Russian bibliography, there was so much very good scholarship, very foundational scholarship in the Soviet period, so that um, still remains. And, and some, um, some scholars still publish, fewer and fewer, but some um, scholars in the Republic and in the sort of, um, like in Moscow, still, still are publishing in Russian. So that material was essential to, um, to address um, and to gesture to. And then also a lot of French scholars. Uh, that's been a, also a, a long tradition of French-Armenian scholars um, and sort of orientalistique in Paris. So um, so those two were big ones. I would say for the French, um, it's about sort of manuscripts and, um, and archaeology mostly. But uh, yeah, those were, those were sort of musts. I tried to keep mostly to, to English citations so my students could follow up um, with research questions, but, you know, it's simply, a lot of times it wasn't possible, and, um, you know, so you hope some of them at least know some French. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're also setting a new a new standard here, I mean, for people to build on. Uh, yeah. I mean, the the book surveys uh, Armenian art from, like, the, the Bronze Age to the 17th yeah. century. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, that uh, must have been, that's tough. Uh, the more oh. you know about a topic, the harder it is to write oh, a short yeah. book about it. It was... And I know this isn't one of our questions, but one of the hard, well, the hardest chapter was chapter, the first chapter on ancient, um, not so much because I, I knew so much, but because the material was separated between, again, extremely technical, you have to, you know, it's nothing giving you any framing except this is the site where this, we were excavating, versus very kind of difficult sort of slightly wacky websites on pre-christian armenia and so trying to kind of synthesize in some way that sort of was at least a little bit authoritative was really hard and um but it, there, this is the only i mean i haven't didn't find anything else where there was a plain spoken uh you know introduction to pre-christian wow. Yeah, so that's what I just needed. Something needed to be out there, even if it's not perfect. It needed something needed to be done right. about it. Yeah. So, and I noticed that for for most of the narrative, you, um, I th I think. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think yeah. that you picked 
these two yeah. sort of themes or axes yeah. to, to go with. In, yeah, yeah. So in addition to the churches, which are yeah obviously a, a must, but I, it yeah. got the impression that you chose to focus on the tradition and the history yeah. of the, the stelae, um, mm-hmm. so the hachkars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also when you're talking about manuscripts on yeah. w- what you call the canon tables. Um, mm-hmm. So did I get that right? I mean, it's, these are recurring yeah. themes, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Could, so, could, you, uh, could you say why you pick those two and what, what they mean, what different yeah. things they, they reveal? Sure. Um, those are great questions, Anthony. Um, so on the one hand, I picked the manuscripts and the Khachkars because we have so many. But uh, So there's abundance. But abundance is also linked to what's published and what gets noticed. So as soon as I sort of sort of started thinking about that answer, I realized... Well, we have a whole lot of other things. We have a lot of ceramics and we have we have textiles, but um, but those don't get as much attention. I think this has to do with the sort of the grand narratives in art history that we tend to tell. We tend to look at paintings, we tend to look at churches, and we tend to look at um, freestanding sculpture. And I think to some extent, my um, this was probably just subconscious that I that I gravitated to these things. But also, there's a lot of scholarship on them. So, in a sense, I think what I tried to do with the book. Um, in in one way is reflect that scholarship, reflect the the wealth of scholarship and sort of what I'm probably doing is giving a proportional sort of representation in the book to how much this stuff is studied in the field. Um, but also doing manuscripts and kachkars got um, made it possible for me to talk about the, the developments of these um, forms of art. So manuscripts from the 7th century to the 17th century, Kachkars from, let's say, the 9th, 10th centuries into the 17th century. So it was a nice time to sort of be able to spend time on the changes in iconography, changes in style, depending on where these things were made and what the what the conditions were and, and um, what was going on around them um, in terms of art. So, so yes, you're right. Is there something about the Kachkars that are that's um i want to say iconic but i I guess i shouldn't use that word with art historians right but i mean are they representative of the armenian artistic tradition in some way yeah yeah i uh, it's a tough question um and off the top of my head i would say you know i think there is well let, let me put it this way one somebody else might say yes because they are largely non-figural they are more abstract they focus on the cross they they reflect the very strong and here i'm speaking as myself for a moment uh, veneration um that the armenians have for the cross and for its worship and we know this from 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 texts but um at the same time that the abstract forms the and and i know this is another question in your in your list so but the abstract forms by which i mean sort of interlace and um geometric designs um, star patterns, octagons, um, you know, those kinds of designs, surface designs are something you find in contemporary Islamic, um, let's say if we're talking about 13th century or 14th century khachkars, you find it in contemporary Islamic uh, art and sculpture as well. So um, so what is, but, but at the same time, Anthony, I think that something about, for me, something about the khachkar in the landscape, uh, whether it's a tombstone or whether it's some kind of commemorative um, uh, uh, instrument, is something that is very much a local Armenian tradition. And I think that, for me, the sort of monolith in the landscape, um, which invites us to think about outdoor veneration practices, perhaps, um, is and and about what the landscape meant to uh, medieval Armenians. That's for me the most sort of resonant and more, most sort of um, I think of as as a sort of very Armenian practice and tradition. So, but you could also think about the iconography, the abstraction, the focus on the cross. I think all of those things. Sure. Uh, the, the reason I asked is because I think the very first one I saw mm-hmm. was. I could be wrong about this. I might not be remembering correctly, but it was in Athens in a park uh, right oh. across the street from the Hilton Hotel where yeah. I think the Greek government had put a whole bunch of monuments, you know, these kinds of exchanges of goodwill that countries do where they... Yeah. And there yeah. was an Armenian, um, you know, yes. what looked like a stelite, right, like that. And it was yes. very interesting and distinctive looking. And I thought yes. that's an interesting thing to send. 
Yes, it is. And that's, um, I mean, and now it's become, uh, um, Kashgar carving has become an intangible cultural heritage um, on that list, the UNESCO list. And they do. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I was just at a wedding this weekend and someone said, someone was in, this person was in China, this relative of mine, and saw Kashgar there because there, you know, there are Armenian colonies, trading colonies there. And, um, and so it's interesting that it's one of these kinds of objects that usually signals uh, very clearly to, I don't know, most of us that this is Armenian. They often have inscriptions, so we can identify something about them. Um, and here, you know, here, this is in, uh, in China, in an Armenian church in China. Um, and yeah, yeah, they've become something, I would say, in this, you know, in the more recent period, something of a kind of ambassadorial um, gift. You see them all over. And often coming with that is sort of uh, commemorate genocide commemorations. So somebody they they'll send Kachkars, for example, from the Republic. They will send out Kachkars to places, and and that will it will not only be a gift of the Kachkar, but also a kind of there'll be usually some kind of event associated, some kind of commemorative event. So it's very interesting to sort of study the the history of the Kachkar from their earliest days in the probably ninth or tenth centuries to today. But they are ongoing, and people are still carving them when you go to Armenia. Yeah, They're yeah, very... your book presents some magnificent specimens. I mean, I, I, I really like them. Yeah, I'm glad. Well, you, you know what? I'm going to send you one. <laughs> what? what? I like can't. From Amazon that, but... or something? Well, you probably. Well, actually, you can get little ones. Yes, you can buy them. So, wow. They don't quite have the same magnificence as the large, you know, six, eight feet tall ones. But wow, that's fascinating. Nice. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, this kind of leads to another another topic I've been thinking about separately, yeah. which is um, national branding. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other. Inter I might do a separate podcast on that. Anyway, okay, so let's turn to you know just picking up the the major themes that come up as you're yep. just sort of exploring the history of Armenian art. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is whether there was anything significant, um, primarily in the scholarship or the politics of the scholarship, about yep. the division between sort of pre-Christian and Christian Armenian art, because in some traditions that's a difficult terrain to navigate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't yeah. know if if it if it's particularly yeah. significant. I so right. Yeah. 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 So it, it's that's it's a great question, Anthony, and it's a, it's a tricky one. I think there are a few different strands that I could tease out, probably. So for Armenia and for talking about pre-Christian Armenia, I think one issue that's important is that I don't think you you can disconnect the subject from the idea that a lot of historical Armenian territory no longer belongs to Armenia. Um, so, for example, when Armenians talk about Urartu, um, you know, they, which is this ancient, um, ancient uh, uh, kingdom or empire in, of Armenia, 9th to 7th centuries BCE, they will um, talk about a site that is in the Republic, uh, Erebuni. But when, when, when you hear about sort of Urartu, uh, Armenians, including myself, will very often also think about all the, the sites that are in today what's modern Turkey. Um, for, for, for Armenians, Urartu is a part of the Armenian past, very much, and it will be, it's presented like that. Um, and the same as, and the same with Garni, which is this um, classical structure, um, peristyle structure, it's usually called a temple, but we don't know for sure, um, in the Republic, and, and Garni um, has been sort of also, uh, you know, assimilated into the Armenian historical narrative and part of Armenian identity. And and I would say further that that Urartu and Garni are kind of often given, um, you know, new stories are told about them uh, that that even more assimilate them into the Armenian historical narrative. The other, but the other, I think the other interesting piece is Iran, and there was a lot of scholarship done as as you as you know, um, in the 90s and 80s on the Iranian pre-Christian um, Iranization of Armenia. And um, this this kind of, it's interesting to watch this because it was, for a while, there were a lot of scholars who were working on this and more and more seemed to be coming out to, to sort of emphasize Armenia's um, uh, Iranian uh, pre-Christian roots. But now there isn't so much discussion about it. So I'm just wondering about that and wondering why that is. But um, that's sort of another strand, uh, a very important other strand to um, Armenia's pre-Christian traditions. But I would say for me, I think you have to kind of go 
culture by culture. So Urartu, Garni, Tigran is a big one. Tigran the Great, our um, our Taxiad king, who um, that's I would say probably the biggest. He's the biggest like hero because he his kingdom stretched from the Mediterranean to the Caspian. So um, these are all points of pride. Uh, so that's that's one interesting piece to one sort of some strands to to answer your question. The other really interesting thing to discuss would be the medieval Christian appropriation of Urartian materials. But that actually, I think, would lead us into your next question, maybe your next question about Hellenistic. Well, yeah, um, the Hellenistic Armenia. is the other side. So Armenia gets pulled yeah. toward Iran on one side, right? Yes, yes. And then you have this concept, Hellenistic, that's foisted yes. on your field, yes. right? So I can imagine yes. how oppressive it is. Yes, um, it really is. Yeah. So, yeah, you kind of push back on it a little bit. I, I personally yeah. so, see no reason why anything should be called Hellenistic. Yeah. If yeah. it's not, you know, within one of the Hellenistic kingdoms. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, what's the yeah. problem with this concept? Yeah. Uh, so um, and I have to here uh, give a shout out to Lori Khachaturian, who's an archaeologist who has worked extensively on Hellenistic Armenia. And she really for me, um, raised the issue that this is a problem. So she works on um, uh, Artaxiad era Armenia and the problem of calling Hellenistic, this a Hellenistic period. So you have during this period, um, like Tigran the Great, um, so first century BCE, um, a Philhellenizing, that's what people often call it, Philhellenizing culture, where Tigran on his coins looks like Alexander. Um, and then you'll see a lot of excavated finds of um, classical looking sculpture. Um, there's Garni, this, this classical structure of Garni. Um, but the problem is that at the same time that you have these, this layer of culture, you also have the Artaxiads um, reaching farther back into their own Achaemenid past. Um, they are even doing things like um, constructing stele that look like Urartian stele. Um, so Lori Khachaturian gives this wonderful example of an Artaxiad stele that looks like an, Urart an old Urartian one. And on it is um, inscribed Aramaic uh, script such that they would use in the Achaemenid court. Um, so there's sort of many different, I think, uh, um, traditions and strands coming into what we're calling Hellenistic Armenia that have to do with, yes, the Mediterranean, but also with the Achaemenid world. Uh, we want to think that that is separate. That's interesting. Um, and then also the deeper past. Um, there's other examples too, wonderful examples of uh, burials of um, from the third to second century BCE in Urartian sites, so in much older sites. Um, and then there's a burial with a child with a um, coin of Alexander in his mouth. So making a nod to um, to classical or Mediterranean funerary practices. So it's a m much more complicated mix of um, of of ideas, of memories, um, of connections with other cultures to simply, uh, so that it's not easily sort of um, encapsulated by the term Hellenistic. And I think that's that um, needs to be further broken apart. So Right. Hellenistic Armenia gives the impression that they're just trying hard to be like Greeks. Yeah, yeah. And I think they're trying to do a lot of different things at the same time. And that's actually why... And I tell my students, that's why I love this material, because it doesn't fit nicely into um, categories of artistic categories that we often learn, ancient Near East, classical, and um, it just doesn't. It won't. It doesn't obey those those cultural categories very easily. So it's it's kind of fun. Yeah, I have my own gripes with that uh, concept. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and because uh, in German, Hellenistic just means Greek. Mm -hmm. And I've been yeah. to discussions where people are just arguing across purposes because the Americans yeah. think that Hellenistic yes. means Alexander to Actium. Yes. And the Germans yes, exactly. think it means anything having to do with Greece at any time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you're just completely talking at cross purposes anyway. Yeah. Uh. Um, all right, all right. Um, a different question. Uh, again, mm -hmm. we're in sort of the realm of ancient and, mm -hmm. and medieval Armenian art. Yeah. Um, that is, I got the impression it was a rather aristocratic art. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the monuments are sponsored and 
for the use of yeah very hereditary yes. aristocracy and yes that's um and yeah i mean and that's who we hear about mostly in the primary sources there's just occasionally you know a sense of um uh the 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 non-elites but mostly it's the elites and their their wonderful uh narratives and their pastimes of hunting and banqueting um and that's reflected at least as far as I can see in in the kinds of artistic patronage we have, um, not entirely. Um, so we have a wonderful gospel book from um, 966 and the Walters that seems to be a much more modest commission. But um, yeah, for the most part, what we have in terms of stone sculpture, manuscripts, churches, it is very much an elite, um, an elite uh, production. Um, but you know, now that we're talking about it, I wonder if there aren't other kinds of things that we haven't, you know, we haven't sufficiently had our eyes open to, whether in excavations or maybe in literary sources that, that might lead us, um, in other directions. So I'm, you know, what I do very much reflects people like Nina Garsoyan, who are looking at the elites and, and their pastimes and their, you know, the way they constructed their identity. But it's not to say that, um, that maybe other ways of thinking aren't out there. So I'm all for broadening the uh, the um, the corpus. Yeah, I'd be very interested in that too. Um, yeah. I, I'm getting especially um, more and more interested in uh, questions of, uh, sort of non-elite populations. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. You, you know, from the outside, you know what Armenian history looked like, like the, the way it's presented. <laughs> yeah. Like if you learn two things about Armenia in like, yep. the Byzantine period, is its geography is fragmented and there are noble houses. Yes, like, yes. That's it. Th those are the yeah. two things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's very much a product of um of uh Nina I think Nina Garsoyan um and work uh from the eighties and nineties. Yes, that that in fact it's this kind of um uh centrifugal tendency and that you have these this constellation of noble houses and then, then that gov governs the church buildings, which also are set up on these nobles' um, uh, lands, and you kind of go on from there. It's interesting. That is the paradigm, and I, I just, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of that too, and I wonder, again, if there are other ways. I think things like cities allow you to think um, in other ways. So when you get to like Ani, or um, you know, mostly Ani, but also maybe Devin, these these cities, you could start thinking um, outside of that. Uh, but yeah, wow, oh, it's it's a it, it's an interesting, and there is actually some interesting new work being done. It's trying to look at other socioeconomic levels um, at Ani. So maybe that's going to be a, a wave of the future. Well, so as I was reading your, I was reading your account of the medieval churches, and mm -hmm. one way of addressing this problem that occurred to me. So yes, so there are all of yeah. these noble houses, and they're dispersed, yeah. and they have their own their own interests, and so on. Yeah. But I got the impression that the churches, um, which, by the way, have some very interesting designs. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. really distinctive and, and quite beautiful. And, you know, yeah. I yeah, I mean, I grew up in the shadow of the Parthenon. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I really like their color pattern, right? Like, yeah. It's, well, Anthony, you need to go to Armenia. And all of you listeners, you need to go because... You're just going to be amazed when you see it in the flesh. Yeah, no, Sorry, your book actually—I I was thinking about it. So, the so what what seems to happen in Armenia, especially like in the starting in the fifth century, is not only the development of a, a, a native literature with its own script, its own language, but this tradition yeah. of of church building that seems to have its own distinctive style. Now, I not I know yeah. I'm not going to be able to back that up with any kind of theory. Um, That's okay. But it occurs to me that the people building these churches, yeah, right, the oh, stonemasons, yeah. the teams, yeah. the carvers, right. So these are probably yeah. not members of the elite households, and they're probably going no. around and are responsible for building churches in a number of regions. Yeah, it's right? true. Do, do we know anything about these people? Oh. Because they're doing some very interesting things. I know. I know it. I wish we knew. I mean, it's really for the tenth, eleventh centuries. We start getting we'd start getting a particular kind of literature, um, this kind of star architect literature where you have, um, you know, the, the architect. This is more like, 
it is more like stark architecture. It's not talking about medieval masons so much. The the masons, the building teams, um, their identities, we know very little. It's very it's very frustrating because they have left so much uh, in such you know this huge abundance, hundreds of churches from the seventh century in such a diversity of ground plans, incredible refinement to the to the masonry. So much loquacious and epigraphy and and sculptural relief and wall painting, and yet you know we know next to nothing. Now that isn't to say there aren't there, isn't, there aren't some kinds of um, bodies of evidence. It's just hard to know how to work with them. So we have what are called mason's marks. They're, and uh, these are diagrammatic marks. They generally are placed on the center of the stones. They are This is practice. They're they're carved on the seventh century churches. Um, not so much later. Mostly on the seventh century churches. And um, you, they're carved on almost every single stone. Sometimes. So sometimes you'll have six hundred marks on the inside and outside of a single church. Now we they come in. They sometimes look like uh, Armenian letters. Sometimes they look like Greek letters. Sometimes they look just like geometric forms. We don't know what they were. We don't know were they signatures? Were was it payment? Were you know this, this all kinds of questions were they locate directions for construction we don't know but they are um they are let's say evidence that has that that has been left to us um about the people who built um so you can read around the subject of the builders uh you can of course read about the monuments and and construction techniques and plan types and we know about the patrons we even know about liturgy uh, because there were liturgies of foundation. Um, but as far as the actual people who, who built them, built the churches, we just, we don't have that evidence. Um, Is it possible yeah. to say in any case that the team that built this church probably built yeah. that church? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that's that kind of work. There's a wonderful um, book from 1963 um, in Armenian called Medieval Armenian Architects and Stonemasons, which gives us basically everything, you know, everything and, and you know, including things that may or may not have to do with masons. Um, and um, in that and and in that book and thereafter, people started looking carefully at the masons marks and thinking about, well, what what might they, if we find the same Mason's Mark at Zvartnots as we do somewhere else, maybe it's connected. But you're, you're right. Even in, and even in terms of just styles and, and construction techniques, we could, we could maybe think about, and even you can see sometimes the stone, you can see the evidence for the tool that, that shaped the stone. Um, so there could be more work to there, archaeological work, um, identify if not individuals, then maybe at least teams. Um, and it would make sense, given the fact that we have so many buildings going up in such a short period of time, that you have you have traveling um, building uh, teams. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, similar yeah. ones have been postulated for the um, for the Mediterranean, like uh, mm -hmm. you know Justinian using some of the same teams that um, Anikia Juliana used for Saint Polyuctus, or even uh. like for Ravenna. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, how many teams could there yeah. have been to build something like that? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, right. I think that makes sense. I just, and maybe we will find out more about them. I mean, the one thing that I think is important for, for people to know is how much remains to be done, including texts. I mean, we have so much that remains to be edited, you know, and, um, and looked at from the point of, from the point of view of these questions. So these answers might be, out there, we might find out more. I have, I'm, I'm quite hopeful. Right um, now, you mentioned the um, uh, inscriptions that were mm -hmm. carved on the outside, and yes, I have the impression that this is a more, more, more prevalent phenomenon in the Armenian churches than in the Byzantine ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what's significant about that? Why are they doing that so much? Yeah. Okay. So, interesting. First thing um, that I wanted to say is we're noticing more and more paint on the interior, um, which in, in years past or decades past, people um, didn't really see because it's not in good shape and most of the churches are kind of dark. But what I'm noticing is more and more inscriptions on the inside, too. So it may just be a kind of loquaciousness um, that is uh, that includes the interior. But it's true that the exterior uh, inscriptions are there are so many and they um, 
why are they there? I've wondered about this. Um, it's interesting to look at the text themselves, the text name, very often the name of the patron, uh, the sort of jurisdictions of power that the patron um, uh, is, you know, sort of has connections with the neighboring powers, whether it's Byzantines or whether it's the Umayyads or whoever it might be. Um, so there's, you could almost think maybe of a, that these, this sort of more public and official tone matches the outside position. That's possible. Um, we know too that these, um, the seventh century churches, but also later too, like at Octomar, the churches were placed um, next to residential complexes. So, um, and very often to the, um, let's see, if the residence is to the south, yes, then that means that the church, the south wall would be, you know what I'm trying to say. So the south wall, because this is an one, another yeah. one of your questions. So the south wall is very often the one um, that is favored both in terms of um, sculpture, but also epigraphy and also sometimes extra portals. Uh, and sometimes that's the only way in is through the south. And the the theory thus far is that that has to do with the fact that the residences are placed to the south. Now, you you could ask me, well, why are the residences placed to the south? And that I know, I don't know the answer to that. But um, but it is interesting. Maybe it has to do with the fact that that's where the sun, um, that's where you get the most sunlight. And it's easiest to read inscriptions on that side. But I think there are a lot of different issues. And then the other thing about um, external inscriptions is that that has been proposed um, is it that this is part of a kind of general uh, importance of the exterior of Armenian churches, um, whether it's the apps, their exterior apses, porticos, stylobates, relief sculpture, sometimes steles placed in close proximity to the church, that there's this sense of what you could call, if you wanted to make up a word, exteriority, that could be connected to liturgical rites, and we know that some liturgies, um, there were some outside components. I almost sometimes think about a connection with Jerusalem, um, thinking about recreating of pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to think about it. And um, yeah, I think, uh, um, but it is something that is, I find distinctive to uh, the Armenian churches and something that connects them too with the dramatic landscape that is around them. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I, um, and thank you for including all of the photographs too, because mm -hmm. the, these churches really do appear to be um, almost like sculpted elements of yeah. the landscape. Yeah. Um, that yeah. these are meant to be seen and experienced on the outside. Yes. Um, unlike, yes. you know, there are other ch uh, churches in the Christian tradition. I'm, you know, a, an extreme example would be like the um, the uh, Red Monastery of Chanut in yeah. Egypt. Yes. Which is just yes. a block like it, you know, but inside yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, I know. I know it. But I know it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, these churches just seem to really try, be trying to make a statement in their landscape. Yes. And Absolutely. And to, for that, I also wanted to thank you for not making your discussion about floor plans. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, cannot you're very follow. welcome. You're very welcome, Anthony. Yeah, I, you know, I knew that I knew, look, it, what the hard thing was, I had, oh, I had such limited um, space. I it really had to figure out, okay, what is essential here for me? And, you know, I know what happens when I show ground plans to my students, <laughs> um, and I didn't want that to happen. So right, right. Guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know that those are also things that um, people can find online pretty easily, uh, whereas the photographs, I don't know. I mean, I guess you can find photographs too, but I like a photo. I, I, I too like a photograph, and so I'm... Well, I, was, I, think, I, I think there's a deeper point I, that is... The people for whom these churches were intended did not experience them as floor plans. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah, floor exactly. plans are useful. Exactly. As a, yeah. They're a modern typology. They're used to, for classification yeah. and genealogical, you know, architectural genealogical purposes. Yeah. But I don't think I, they're experienced that way. No. And I think, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. Um, there has been wonderful work uh, on Armenian architecture looking at floor plans in depth. And so... Um, I think my choice was in part to turn away from that, um, you know, as a kind of exclusive medium to convey the importance of the architecture. And, and at the same time, I think the, the, the role of the architecture and the landscape 
has not, I mean, it's shocking to, to think of, let's say the Church of Klitzkonk, um, that I think you were going to ask me about, that, you know, this was, this church was described by Josef Strzegowski in 1913, and he has a plan of the church, and nowhere does he talk about its extraordinary position in the landscape. Um, and yet, that had to have been one of the most uh, important aspects of the experience of the monument. Um, could you describe it? Could could you tell yes. our listeners how it's designed to meld into the landscape? Yeah. So so the church is um, a uh, polygonal church that is right on the cliff of um, the uh, Digor River, which is a which is a river gorge in um, the Digor. Uh, province or Kars province, Digor is in the Kars province of Turkey. And this church, it's, um, it just sits right up on a cliff. It was once um, surrounded by five other churches. It's the only one left. And it, if, you, if you look at it, and usually, okay, so how you get there is you have to walk about a 45-minute walk along the river valley, uh, and then you climb to where the, the cliff is, and you generally get some amazing photographs of it as you're looking from, let's say, 50 or yeah, about maybe 50 or 20 meters away. And what you see is the striated bedrock of the, the cliff rising from the, from the river gorge. And then you see the roughly processed masonry of the um, lowest part of the substructure of the church. And then you see the, um, the church itself, the church wall itself, which is a polygonal church. And then you get to the, the drum, which is cylindrical and then you have this umbrella roof which is a kind of comes to a point and um and would have been had a cross at one point but what's so amazing in is this transition this gradual transition from the nat the natural to the carved from the rough to the smooth um that is is just um it's makes such a strong statement i mean it seems to be very important now that's not to say uh that it in the in earlier times, and we know this from engravings and old drawings, it wasn't surrounded by other churches, and you know, but but you still would have had that sense of seeing the striated rock of the cliff, and then the gradually more refined masonry. And what I love about this is how that could have been understood as a as a kind of structural metaphor or a structural statement about the continuum of the natural with the um with the the let's say um spiritual space and when we remember that um and this is a point i like to make that um the first armenian king, christian king Tardat quarried the stones of uh these churches or the first churches from ararat we are reminded that that armenians sort of saw um, in the Middle Ages saw all around them this landscape, which was a landscape of conversion. So the physical landscape was part of that. Right. And um, I think churches p- sort of demonstrate that in their landscape so well. Um, you know, same with Etchmiadzin, um, the, the sort of holy sort of Vatican, if you like, of the Republic or, or of Armenia more generally, uh, which is, was, is on a high plateau like so much of actually historical Armenia, but it was Etchmiadzin that God came down with a golden hammer and flattened the earth to make it into a plateau. So, so, so much of the landforms have to do with this conversion, uh, the conversion narrative. And I think that that somehow needs to be connected with the, um, the church architecture more. There's a lot more to say about that. And, and I, you know, I haven't even talked about the liturgy, um, but there too, you have this kind of, um, evocations of nature um, in all its variety uh, that would have um, been evoked right at the time when the church was founded uh, or consecrated. So there's a lot of richness in terms of the natural world that can be, um, that that is attested in, in, in texts that can be brought to bear when we look at these beautiful churches and their beautiful landscapes. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, you do, you do a great job of describing how it, that church, the St. Sergius, it really does look like it grew there and just yeah, you know, I know. Grew I know. out of the ground and exactly. primordial yeah yeah i think it's the first case of that I've, that i've seen it's so clear i'm and i have that idea in my head um a long time ago i reading arthur schopenhauer <laughs> he had he had some interesting okay. aesthetic <laughs> theories right 
So this yeah. early 19th century German philosopher. And one of the things that he said that really struck me was that the Greek temple form is the most mm -hmm. natural architectural form and that all Greek temples look like they just grew where they are. So fascinating. Yeah. And I, okay. I think they don't, they don't look like that at all. <laughs> this is that's just so what a 19th century German thinks is natural. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Right. It's like, what, what, right. What, what is, it depends on your idea of natural. Um, yes. Very yes. interesting. Yeah. The, um, yeah. the only, well, it's not the same thing, but you know, when you're going up the Acropolis um, and you're mm. going through the Propylaea, so there's the big, you know, the entrance right right in front of you. And then there are the two wings on either side, right? Yeah. North and south. Yes. Yeah. And have you noticed the um, lower step um, mm -hmm. underneath the north and south wings of the Propylaea? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> this is interesting. The, the architect put that in a gray stone ah. so that it becomes invisible when you're looking at the oh. whole thing. And the idea is... <laughs> to eliminate that step from the visual perception of the of the wings because the wings are smaller than the you know what you're seeing in ah, front of you yeah. and so requires less visible support oh that's so interesting yeah but, but it's not i don't think it's meant ah. to you know be a statement about nature it's just to correct for the relative size of things Yes. Yeah, yes. Thing. So there was a there was a right and and like at the Parthenon too, you know, we're we're taught about the importance of the perception of this structure and the attention that was given by the architects to to its perception from afar. Right. If I'm remembering my art history books correctly, um, and that's actually it's interesting to think. Now you're making me think about this about how Chutzkong, whether or to what extent we were, we were made, you know, the architects had in mind this, this particular kind of continuum that we see and maybe, you know, between the bedrock and the, and the structure. But I mean, and the, maybe they were thinking, oh, from, you know, that cliff over there, it's going to look really good. I mean, right, I don't know, right. but why not? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, why yeah. not? It's uh, it's perfectly possible. Right, right. Um, Okay, so we um, we talked earlier about the the aristocratic nature of a lot of this yes. art. I was yes. also struck that the monastic tradition doesn't enter yes. into your survey until relatively late. Um, yeah, I think it yes, enters yes. In a, like late tenth century. So is that a yeah. product of the, the the artistic tradition itself, or a choice of yeah. the selections that you made? Yeah, no, great question. So this actually underlying um, this issue of monasticism is a debate that that is happening in scholarship on when we start having cenobitic monasticism, for one. So we, you know, the um, one of the main theories is that that we really start having it in the seventh century. Um, but there are others who, who think it happened earlier. Um, but in any case, whether or not we get um, Cenobitic monasticism in the seventh century or earlier, the monastic structures, the purpose-built monastic structures, date to the tenth century. It doesn't mean that all the churches that I discuss in the seventh century and seventh century context didn't function as monasteries, partially, entirely, at some point in their lives. Um, we we know that they were, that at least some were. Um, but it had my my um, decision to sort of really focus on start in the 10th century has to do with what has survived. Um, so largely what we start seeing is 10th century um, and some 9th century royal patronage of monasteries, and it kind of goes from there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about the purpose-built monastic structures um, and when they date. Right. So, yeah, yeah, so you mentioned... Um survival and mm -hmm. I, I wanted to draw attention to the last part of your book yeah um, where you talk about memory and and heritage yeah. um yeah. and actually one of the uh, interesting questions um that i had about armenian art is like yeah. exactly why does it survive yes um yes. because sur survival is not something that you know, we can take for granted no i right? know there have to be agents of survival I know. And I'm... it's pretty rare for a tradition linked to, you know, a particular culture with its language and, you know, territory to have survived yeah. for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Under very yeah. difficult circumstances. 
I know. So, it's I mean, true. like, what are the main agents of the survival of all of this art? Such a great question. I mean, what's so, and just to add to the question, what we have is just a fraction of what was. Um, so there are about 35,000, maybe 40,000 manu Armenian manuscripts that are out there that, you know, according to, to some kind of count, you know, thousands of churches, probably thousands of Kachkars, um from from the 17th century and before. And um, it is, it is, it's just, it's an amazing amount of, of, of stuff. When you look at, Okay, so when you look at um, this is kind of I'm going to answer around your question. Um, the you know who who makes it the patrons. There's there is a very strong very strong tradition of um, patronage at at every level um, going into the 17th 18th centuries. So you have um, lots of of and more of sort of um, merchant patronage as the later you go. Um, so that's one piece, but why, and let's start with the architecture. Why would, why does that survive? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think so, there, there, I could answer you in one way by saying that the mortar is really strong, but eh, you know, so attempts to vandalize Armenian medieval Armenian monuments, that doesn't really work. But, um, well, could we, could we flip the question? Yeah, in other words, sure. are these the kind of monuments that will last pretty much indefinitely unless yeah. someone destroys them. Yeah, I, 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 you know, yes, I think they do last very well unless someone makes a concerted effort. Um, and you can see like that kind of very concerted efforts nowadays in Azerbaijan with the kinds of cultural destruction that's going on there that has gone on with this, um, the Julfa Cemetery, which, um, was a vast and, and right, very conclusive destruction of an Armenian cemetery, Terry, that was actually caught on video and it can be seen on YouTube. And the same goes for our churches in the Jolfa area, too, that were raised to the ground. Um, so, you know, in, in Turkey, you, you also have examples of Armenian churches that have been vandalized and in some cases destroyed completely, but, but not as much as what I've seen happen in Azerbaijan, where it is, it's like something is, it's like a church that's been picked clean. It's unbelievable. So, um, you know, it's, so I think on the one hand, it's about a tremendous um, uh, sort, of, sort of entrenched practice of patronage. Um, uh, and, but again, that doesn't really, you know, how, how can I think of this? You know, I think the other thing too, is that there's a tremendous sense of wanting to protect these materials. I mean, you look at the Matanadaran, the, the library, the manuscript library in the Republic and, and, and the care they take for these manuscripts, but even that, but I don't know, I don't know, Anthony, I don't know why there, there are so many. Um, it's, it's really incredible. It's almost like I think when you work in my field, you never think of that. You just think, oh, I wish there were more. But, you know, it is amazing to think about. Like, why are there uh, so many manuscripts? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But, it is. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, as a Byzantine historian, I keep, I'm always amazed at just how many Armenian histories there are. Like, yes. It's, it's, a, it's very much a pure tradition. Like, oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't have enough sources on the eastern side of Byzantium. Let me go see what the Armenian sources say. Exactly. Well, Which there you rare. go. Yeah, and you know we're finding new stuff all the time. Um, not just I'm um, texts, but but manuscripts just that that are just out there. I just visited a 94 year old lady in Cambridge who has a beautiful um, Grigor Naragatsi, this sort of Lamentations by Gregory of Narek, 10th century um, text in this beautiful 17th century manuscript. And that's wow. been, uh, you know, off the books, not published. Um, and this happens a lot. So it's, I think that there's only going to be more um, out yeah. there. It is, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Is he the same person who wrote a text for Basil II? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I, I don't I, think. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have, so I have two more questions for you. Okay. Uh, more general ones. So yes. the first one is from what most of the listeners of this podcast, I imagine, are primarily interested in Byzantium. Yeah. Can you tell, you know, Byzantinists or people interested in Byzantium yeah. why they should look more at Armenia and Armenian art? 
Sure. Okay. Well, you kind of answered that already when you said, since you don't have so much, maybe you want to find more text, you should you should go and see what the Armenians are doing because they're always doing something fun. And, um, I, you know, so I could answer you in part by talking about the many important uh, connections there were between Armenian and Byzantine cultures across the centuries, um, whether it's about an annexing Armenian territory, thanks a lot, Byzantinists or Byzantines, <laughs> Um, or whether it's about theological disputes, or whether it's about, um, you know, the kind of Byzantinizing literature we get sometimes in Armenia in the 10th, 11th centuries, or it's cultural um, or artistic, you can find so many interesting connections. So I think that's, I think that is uh, just one whole big reason um, to look into Armenia. But the other thing I would say, too, is that I hope for Byzantinists I hope that they would come across um, in their readings something about Armenia or Armenians or some, you know, wicked Armenian priest or something like that and just not be afraid to follow it up because there's just so much. And what's so interesting for me right now is reading correspondence between Armenian um, priests, bishops, and um, Byzantine bishops or Syriac bishops and seeing what they're Syrian bishops and seeing what they are talking to each other about. Usually it's they're angry at each other about various devotional practices. Um, and it's just fascinating to have a sense of uh, looking at looking maybe at the culture you study, the primary culture you study, but looking at it from another person's angle. Um, so it's kind of it's in, it can be incredibly illuminating. And I would just say, don't be afraid. This material is, is just it's like it's just an open horizon. Um, to, to learn more about not only Armenia, but also in the process about Byzantium. So it's good stuff. Yeah. You know what? I can add an example that mm -hmm. was f for me just this morning. Uh -huh. So just this morning, I woke up and as one does, I go to the TLG, um, <laughs> the Thesaurus Lingua uh, Greca. Uh, of course, of course, of course. As, as, yes. And yes. I thought just experimentally, I would just type in um, a search, a global search, right? All Greek texts for mm -hmm. the words, I am a Roman. Oh. Okay, because, you know, you know, I'm interested in this question. Yes, I know. And, I mean, it's very rare that you find anybody in a text saying something like that. That's yes. normally not how yes. declarations of identity happen. Yes. And there was a hit. And the, the person making the claim is described as the nephew of the Catholicos of Armenia. And I'm, what is, what is that? Huh. Yes. So this is a text um, written about some theological, uh, you know, a conference uh, held in uh -huh. Armenia in like 1070 or 1070. No, no, no. 1170, okay. 1172. Uh, oh. And there's a Byzantine envoy sent by Manuel Comnenus and okay. to the um, Catholicos. And they're having this debate uh, about, you know, it's the usual, you know, natures, you know, one nature, two natures, right, this right. sort of thing. Right. And the nephew of the Catholicos happened to side with the Chalcedonians on this issue. And he stood up at one point and said, <gasps> no, but he says, on this issue, I'm a Roman. I'm with the Romans. Oh, my God. That's great. OK, so I follow this up. <laughs> and guess who else was at that meeting? Um, let's Michael see, so the, the 11th... Syrian. What? Yes, himself. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, did did he write about it as well, or yes. what? He did. Yes. <laughs> Is this going to be in your next book, Anthony? No. No, no. That's just my morning wake up routine. <gasps> that's amazing. I love it. I love it. That's great. All right. Second question, uh, mm -hmm. and I asked this, uh, or last question, I asked this about yeah. the guests. Can you yes. recommend two books that are not necessarily in this field or on Byzantium okay. that that you think are great mm -hmm. for uh, thinking with? Okay, the first one would be Roman land, ethnicity, and oh, empire. Oh, no, 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 not mine. <laughs> okay, uh, that's a really, okay, that's a tough question. I'm going to just try and say to your your listeners, um, I don't read a lot to think with. I, I, I read very deeply in my own field and like whatever, I pick up on leads, but I don't really read uh, much outside of like English literature, you know, like 1920s British novels. You know what really, though, um, has always been helpful to me is the book of Psalms because the language, the ideas, the imagery are so helpful to me 
um, for understanding the liturgy. With I mean, liturgy is filled with um, psalm, psalmic um, uh, passages. And so, but I hadn't really, before I started working a lot on liturgy and architecture, I hadn't really, really spent time with the psalms, but they're amazing. They're beautiful. They're sad. They're, you know, everything. They kind of give you everything. And so I have never been sorry to to read the psalms. That's what I would say. That's a great answer. Um, I hadn't imagined that anybody would, would answer it like that. Um, no, no, no. That's that's great. I mean, if you really want to get into the thought world, right? Uh, yeah. Of, yeah. 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 No, they're they're so rich, and um, they seem to have just so much. It's just an archive of ideas. So yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Christina, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure, and uh, you know, the, I hope that your book moves more people to consider Armenian art as uh, the patrimony of mankind, something that should be preserved by everybody. Well, thank you, Anthony. And thank you so much for giving me a chance to to talk. I'm so excited about your podcast, and I'm so honored to have been invited. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I'll see you uh, in Madison. Great. See you then. All Take right. care. Bye. Bye.